This is episode eight. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. You can learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for joining me today. Today's episode will be of particular interest to people on leadership journeys in the not-for-profit, for-purpose and NGO sectors, as well as those working in the public service where their roles interface with these sectors. And if you have a particular bent for evidence-based leadership, evidence-based decision-making and practice, this is the episode for you. Dr Lisa Griffiths is the CEO of the national for-purpose organisation Ozchild. She brings 30 years of executive and leadership experience to her current role. With Lisa at the helm, Ozchild is now positioned as a national leader in the provision of evidence-based programs in child protection, family violence and youth justice in Australia. Lisa received her doctorate in business leadership in 2019. She holds a number of non-executive directorships in the sector, but Lisa says most importantly, she is a wife and mother to five children. And out of the box, Lisa is a former double Commonwealth Games medalist in judo. We'll explore that at some point in our conversation. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Penny. Lovely to be with you today. Lisa, I begin each podcast by asking my guest, why does leadership matter? You live in Melbourne where there is a resurgence of COVID as we speak. Can you reflect on why leadership matters in the current context of COVID-19? Well, I always like to respond to the question about leadership in saying that leadership is very much a privileged position and you really aren't leading unless people want to work with you and, and follow you in some kind of way. And currently in this, you know, crisis that has uh, appeared before us in the last number of months being COVID, what leaders should and have been doing is adapting their leadership approach and their leadership style specifically for the context. And I think one of the marks and hallmarks of leadership in general is your ability to read the context and whether that be a pandemic like we're in now, which means you immediately have to go from uh, your day-to-day service delivery to a response to a crisis and ensuring that you're looking after the safety or and well-being of all of your people as well as all of your clients. Uh, and that's a challenge for, for many leaders. And leading during crisis uh, requires a different approach in terms of, uh, and I've throughout my career, I've uh, whether it's a good or a sad thing, I've uh, been involved in several crises, and most notably, other than this pandemic, would be Black Saturday, uh, which occurred uh, in 2009, where we sadly lost 173 lives in Victoria through the, through the bushfires. Um, and once again, what I've experienced recently in responding to this particular crisis is really quite similar to to that crisis in that. First of all, everybody isn't quite sure what to do. All the emotions become very relevant. You know, everybody's in shock. So you go through the sort of the five stages of grief. And good leaders and uh, effective leaders take the time to be very measured in that space. And you, you actually have to respond in a very thoughtful way that allows yourself the opportunity to look what the presenting crisis is, what, what's the evidence 
um, telling you. So what's the, the data points that are before us and ensure that you still critically evaluate uh, the data sources. So whatever your response is going to be, you're going to increase the likelihood of a favourable outcome. So data is informing your decision-making. What data points are you watching right now at Child? Well, of course, in the outer context or at the sort of macro level, watching the data emerge. So when we first had COVID entered to us, uh, the early uh, information coming out and the images we would see uh, both locally but particularly internationally was a large proportion of um, of deaths but a disproportionate amount of deaths against diverse populations. So anybody over the age of 60, people that have got multiple health issues and uh, come from black or African-American backgrounds uh, or overrepresented in Asian backgrounds, etc., around the world. And that already draws your focus, but you can make some probably incorrect assumptions that then children who seem to be underrepresented or hardly feature in the early data would be potentially safe from the virus. And in fact, I remember recall the early conversations where people were kind of likening COVID to, oh, well, let's all just get it and then it will be over with. And of course, that tells you something about uh, using data and using data at a point of time. Of course, then if you look Beyond that to what's happening in terms of your own organization and leadership in response to the crisis, the sort of data points that we, we look to very, very quickly were the crisis impacting our people and were they affected? Uh, were they getting the right supports? How was their mental health and well-being going? And were the new conditions, as in we've been placed into a lockdown, uh, impacting their ability to to do their jobs. Lisa, I want to come back to your work at Ozchild shortly, but before we go further, can you speak about your entry into leadership? Was it with intent? Were you following a plan? Or was it happenstance? I think I almost sit on the fence with this one, Penny. It's interesting. <laughs> what drove me into my career was very much having a niece born prematurely, and I was 15 at the time, and uh, I grew up in Wales in a working class family where, you know, we didn't have very much growing up. And uh, I was very excited to get a new niece. I was quite taken aback when I discovered that uh, my niece wasn't meeting the developmental milestones that she, she should have met when she was, when she was born. Time progressed. Uh, she didn't meet more of these milestones and eventually we understood that she had cerebral palsy and I didn't really quite know what to make of that and I certainly didn't know what I could do about it and at the same time I was very active in the sport of judo which you mentioned in the introduction and traveling extensively to competitions and preparing for Commonwealth Games and started to do very well and uh, I used to journey away from Wales quite a lot on those travels and one particular summer I came back to Wales and by this stage my niece was now four and I always would try and go and catch up with her because she was the sort of light of my life at the time and I remember um, sitting in a street and there was lots of kids playing in the street, running up and down the street. And, and Carly had braces on her legs to help improve her gait because of the spasticity that affected her muscles. 
and she started to um to cry and, and it's probably the worst experience in the world to watch a child cry and uh, I asked her you know Carly what's wrong what can I do and she basically said to me she was crying because she couldn't run like the other children and it dawned on me at that moment that there was something I could do to help this little girl uh, and that was to teach her to run because it didn't seem that nobody had taken the time to try and do that with her so I spent the next six weeks teaching her to run and she couldn't run a straight line by the end of the six weeks, but she could run. And uh, that joy in her face in somebody taking the time and investment into seeing beyond those leg braces and that she uh, had the capacity to be able to do what other children did really inspired me to, to then refocus my career from just being about oneself and winning medals for my nation to wanting to make a difference in the lives of others. So that uh, got me into um, studying and becoming a, a teacher of children with special needs. And um, that where my junior career kind of led me to Australia. And uh, I think in Australia, I came here on a distinguished talent visa to help improve uh, outcomes for women in doing judo, but ended up pursuing working with adults and children with disabilities because that was so near and dear to my heart. So uh, I think through that determination, it sort of happenstance, but very intentional, led me to want to get better outcomes continuously. And I've always sort of found wherever I've worked, I've wanted to improve the lives of the uh, client group that I'm working with. That's a really powerful experience and it clearly influenced your career path, Lisa. Can you recall when you were first drawn towards leadership? I think one of the uh, important learnings that I had, part of that strong foundation I had through judo, there was a common set of uh, values and principles that, that sort of connect you to the world of, uh, and the sport of judo. And uh, they, they go back to Japan and to the founder of uh, Judo, Judo Kano, who really wanted to ensure that all students of Judo always were selfless and always invested into improving oneself, but always for the betterment of others. And within that context, leading others and showing those right and modeling those right behaviors so that uh, you can create a better society. I think that where I sort of found myself in my career was to always see those playing out in, in whatever role I had. So I was never afraid to challenge myself because in that 20-year career of judo, uh, you were always challenging yourself with an opponent. But judo always teaches you that you should celebrate uh, victory, but you always um, celebrate your opponent's victory more so that you're always honouring the other. And that gives you a very, from my perspective, that gave me in leadership a very easy uh, way to sort of not be afraid to fail because when you lose to an opponent on the judo mat and you've already been taught that you should celebrate their success, then if you put yourself up for a leadership position where, you know, it comes with risk, um, if you're humble enough to know that you can fall over but pick yourself back up and uh, then it's much easier, to, I think, to to enter that uh, the, the proposition of being a leader. 
And as I said right at the beginning, leadership's a privilege. You might be in a role where you're managing people, but that doesn't mean to say you're necessarily a great leader or an effective leader. Effective leadership really comes down to how you bring a bunch of people with you to deliver on an outcome, as opposed to getting the title of CEO, that is merely a title and titles uh, are meaningless unless you've got uh, those people to work with you. You know, Lisa, over nearly 20 years, our leadership paths in the for-purpose sector have intersected a number of times. One of your great strengths is your capacity to bring head and heart to leadership. Leaders in this sector have to be able to balance the heart, responding to the unmet needs of vulnerable groups, and the head, sourcing and distributing the resources to ensure the organisation serving its purpose while operating as a sustainable business. How do you balance head and heart at Auschild? That's such a lovely uh, description, Penny, because in the for-purpose world and in the, or the non-profit world, there's a lot, in fact, in Australia, if you looked, at, if you went to the Australian Charities Not-for-Profits Commission website and saw the number of registered charities, you'll find uh, there's 59,000. That's an awful lot of good causes in the world and often if you unpack all of that data to really sort of understand the size and complexity of those businesses, the number shrinks down to um, a very small uh, amount into the hundreds rather, not even the thousands. The reason that there is thousands of little charities is very much for those people that lead with the heart. Something happens in their lives or they really want to change what they do and they want to give back and they throw themselves into uh, the for-purpose, non-profit world, establish a cause and probably at, at the level uh, they're working within are incredibly successful and often these organisations, uh, one or two people or, or a few more, and, uh, but it's a struggle street as well, constantly raising funds and raising awareness, whatever the cause or the, the organisation might have. The criticism of that approach is then, can you ever create sustainability? And if you're going to truly have an impact, a dramatic impact in changing lives, you really do have to have that cause, you know, understand what the problem is you're trying to solve. You also then have to uh, have really, really, really good research and data on what you're going to do to solve it. And when you discover what it is that that works, that's going to help you solve that problem, then whatever that is, it has to be something that's going to, first of all, be able to be implemented effectively in your context because context plays a really, really big part. You then have to be able to um, replicate whatever you're doing if you're going to have that dramatic impact. And, of course, you've got to be able to take it to scale. And you can't do those things unless you lead with your head, as you say, as well. Because the heart is what gets you to understand what you want to change, but it's the head that gives you the tools to be able to do it in a sustainable way that's actually going to make that long-term difference. And that speaks to your focus on applying evidence to ensure resources are allocated where they'll have the most impact. Can you speak about how you're growing the capacity of Auschild to respond to needs through that delivery of the evidence-based practice? It's a great joy of mine to talk about evidence-based practice and evidence-based whatever, because you hear a lot of terms in the world, they'll say evidence-based policy, evidence-based program, evidence-based intervention, evidence-based medicine, 
evidence and it goes goes on and on. It really boils down to that you have multiple sources of evidence. A neat way to describe that is to get evidence from practitioners and most people, of course, are the expert in their own world. So uh, Penny used to work in the disability sector, so did I. So we probably would say that we know a little bit about that sector. So we really trust the evidence we have in our practice wisdom. There's equally valid evidence from stakeholders, those people with disabilities that experience the service system. They equally can give you a lot of data that can change the way you're going to respond to them. Uh, At the same time, in any organization, there'll be a bunch of organizational data in terms of how clients and staff are experiencing services, as well as uh, scientific research. And in in the field that I'm in, in child welfare now, surprisingly, scientific research has probably been the lowest level of data input to any service design or intervention that we may give to a child or to a family member. So if you've got your multiple sources, then your job in evidence-based practice is to ensure that you use all of them, but not just use them to think, oh, I've I've spoken to a client or a group of clients, I've run a focus group, or I've done an evaluation. That tells you a little bit, but you really have to critically appraise all of the evidence. And I think that's where most leaders fail. They take the time to possibly read a research report or maybe they'll do a little bit of doctor googling to find out information but unless you critically evaluate the evidence from multiple sources then you're not necessarily going to improve the outcome so i'm try and work with anybody that will listen explain to them that if we learn how to look for the data we learn how to critically evaluate that data then all of us can potentially increase evidence-based decision-making, and that translates into good evidence-based practice. But if we go back to your early question about COVID, if in this current context we had the politicians, and, and we actually have real examples of this, where we have politicians in some countries of the world that are listening to their own internal voice because they are the expert of themselves and they believe that they have the answers. As a result of that, one might argue there is mass genocide occurring in certain countries and not just one, but at least two where that leadership approach has been demonstrated. If you look to our home of Australia, where we've had politicians that have deferred to science and have deferred to public health officials and deferred to epidemiologists who have tracked continuously and modelled the data That has then given the politicians the tools to make a good evidence-based decision based on the relevant and current data to then protect the population of Australia. The the other classic one, of course, is as if you or I or any of your listeners go to the doctor with a uric. You say to the doctor, yeah, my, I've got ringing in my ears. My ear's really painful. And the doctor says, I tell you what, my gut tells me today that I'm going to try my homemade remedy. Uh, which is lemon tea. So here's your prescription for lemon tea. And you kind of think, why are you giving me a prescription for lemon tea? It makes no sense whatsoever. And, and, and that's really how it can be for leaders if they rely on and they don't challenge their own assumptions. They don't recognize their own inherent biases. They don't think about 
the impact those biases can have on the very, in my field, vulnerable, vulnerable children and families that you're working with. And they drive a solution because it's what they know rather than stepping outside and critically looking at what does work so that you can give the best possible uh, option for that child or family to get the best service they can. Lisa, for any listeners on leadership journeys who may be reflecting on whether they have biases that are impacting their decision-making, what advice would you give them? Well, well, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Daniel Kuhneman, who wrote uh, that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which if your readers haven't read, it's a it's a very valuable book to read because it really does teach you about unconscious bias. And even Daniel Kuhneman himself, who wrote at length about this, said we can only do so much for oneself, but we are inherently biased. So we, we all carry out uh, it around with us every day. So the way to protect ourselves from our own bias is a few things. One, of course, is what I've already outlined is to you know, make sure that if you're going to make a critical decision, not an everyday decision, you know, making a decision about what you want to eat for dinner is nowhere near as important as making a decision about what's the best intervention for a child that's experiencing abuse and neglect. Um, so if you've got a big decision to make, uh, don't rush to make it. Sit on your hands and evaluate the evidence and get all sources of data that you can, even though your gut may be driving you to say, this is what I want to do. Now, you may end up validating yourself and, you know, the answer might be right. But more often than not, if you do critically evaluate things, you find there might be other solutions open to you that you didn't think of already, even though you may think you have the answer. The other thing is to surround yourself by people that you allow to challenge your thinking. So I have a solid rule with my executive team that they must challenge constantly each other and and my own thinking so that if uh, I'm going down a pathway too far without maybe, you know, living to my own rules, they uh, they pull it up and they they call it out and uh, we have a psychologically safe space for doing that. I'm sure we've got listeners who report to someone who's not open to robust discussion or diverse views. What would your insights be to help them to open this person up to different views? I think um, some of the best opportunities are when you are managing up and I think I've had my greatest growth <laughs> as a leader in managing up because it really is a challenge. Like I have incredibly effective leaders that work with me and all around me, which I know that all the decisions that they to me are have gone through that process I've outlined. But if you are a, in a leadership role where you want to influence your leader Taking the, the evidence-based approach, if there's an important decision to be made, looking for the sources of evidence that are going to give you the information that will help make a better decision. So if it, if it is a new service response and your leader wants to you know, apply for the service response with, we'll just do what we do now, we'll do more of X, and you know that X has been going for 10 years, and if it was working, then you wouldn't see that number going up all the time, you'd see the number going down. But putting together that uh, as much data as possible to challenge that thinking in a, in a safe way is the approach I would take. 
you take the approach where you work to influence the the leader that you're there to set them up for success and it's your job to ensure that you manage the risk because it is a risk if they if they make a poor decision and if that then fails particularly if you're working in the for purpose sector where it's critically important and ethically important that you deliver the right types of services to to, to your clients then I would present it in that way that you are trying to ensure that you ethically uh, and responsibly support them to make a good decision by providing them with that rich source of evidence and what you think they need to review so that they can see it for themselves. For listeners thinking about pivoting from their current sector into the for-purpose sector, how would you advise them to prepare for the transition? What could they be doing now in advance of applying for a role? I always think it's um, wonderful when uh, people from the corporate sector want to come across to the for-purpose sector and one of the great strengths that they bring often is that well-rounded skill set that you tend to have to learn in the corporate sector because you're driven very much by the bottom line, by the dollar, by shareholder value, um, whatever, you know, the, the, the the context is for the business you may have come from. The difference in transition transitioning across, of course, is that sort of bottom line or that shareholder value is actually often um, a cause, and that cause tends to be a human being. Or if you if you're working in the corporate sector and you're working in the banking industry, for example. You know that what's driving the decisions often of the CEO is shareholder value, finding return on investment for all the shareholders, as well as ensuring that you've got value proposition for your customers because your customers, of course, are going to be bringing dollars into the bank to create more shareholder value. These are transferable skills to the for-purpose sector, but that value proposition that you then have to offer in of yourself to that environment really has to shift to be very centered on a person. And if I use the, the context I'm in, my driver every day in getting out of bed is how can I change the lives of children and families that are experiencing vulnerability? And, you know, knowing that the data is not going the right direction in Australia for vulnerable children and knowing the current context where we might see a whole lot more vulnerable children off the back of a, a recession, what now can I be doing to respond to that context? The first thing, if you're going to go across the for-purpose sector, is what do you want to achieve? If you work in the for-purpose sector, generally you want to know what do I want to achieve for the client? So it's a, a bit of a shift in your perspective. It doesn't mean to say that you can't go and work in the for-purpose sector and just get a job and earn money, but most people make the shift across because they want to make a difference. So when you find your place, how you that should help prepare you for the transition of measuring your self-worth, not through the dollars you earn, but the outcomes you achieve. And and I'm always reminded of a, a very wonderful uh, story from Viktor Frankl. And for those of your listeners who don't know who Viktor Frankl is, he was a, uh, an Austrian doctor who was taken in the Auschwitz and put into um, internment with, uh, with a number of colleagues uh, he was removed from his family and he had a wife and seven children. And with all of his colleagues in the uh, internment camp, of course, the 
Germans were wanted to command that they did all sorts of difficult and challenging things during the day. And uh, Peter Frankel said to all of his colleagues, we'll do whatever they ask. And they go, but why? You know, we don't have to do this hard work. It's really horrible work. And these were surgeons and doctors. And he said, man must always have something to do in life. And then um, he also shared with uh, the guys that he worked with while he was in internment to say, not only must we have something to do, but we must always think of our family because it's really important for man to have someone to love. And finally, the other thing we must always have when we are here is we must always have hope um, because without hope there is no future. He, he survived the Auschwitz and as did all of the people that were interned with him. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and uh, he lost all his family. They died in the other concentration camps, but he went on to live a very productive life and authored many books. He was the father of logotherapy. But those three things always have something to do, someone to love and something to hope for, are probably the really critical things that we need to hold on to. Leading an organisation through a pandemic is certainly not for the faint-hearted. Auschwitz Complex and its national organisation, can you provide some insights into the key initiatives you're leading at Auschwitz? Yes, well, I'm very proud of Auschwitz. We uh, are going to turn 170 years old next year and uh, we are the second oldest child welfare organisation in Australia. We started off as um, an orphanage back in uh, 1851 and our uh, mission then, which is now our purpose today, uh, was to provide, you know, shelter for those children that were abandoned uh, back back in those days. Uh, in our modern version of of Auschwitz, you know, our vision is that all children and young people are safe, respected, nurtured, and reach their full potential, and we do that by supporting children and young people to receive healing, preventing abuse and neglect, and strengthening families. And we really try and influence and orientate the system around Australia to invest in early intervention so that you can avoid so much uh, trauma if uh, you intervene early and, and play a big part in strengthening families. Uh, so we've been a really strong voice in seeking investment from governments all around Australia to to do that. And when I joined uh, Auschwitz in 2014, uh, most of the services we delivered were in the uh, out-of-home care sector, which is where we provide kinship care, foster care. Previously, what uh, I determined to do was, after doing lots of extensive research work, um, there was in Victoria a 1,000 Aboriginal children and young people in out-of-home care. Five years later, there was 2,000, so it doubled in five years, and the numbers of children removed from families has also doubled in the last decade around Australia, so it's it's incredible crisis for us. Our part has been to raise the awareness uh, of the governments uh, around Australia to say, you're not really investing in the right part of the system, and you're not investing into what works so that we can prevent children from being removed. What you outline is a significant challenge. How are you influencing change in this space? After extensive research and identifying three or four key problem statements that we wanted to influence, one being we wanted to reduce the number of children that were removed from families. We wanted to reduce the number of Aboriginal children and young people removed from families and the overrepresentation. 
want to reduce the number of youth entering youth justice and we want to, to step down and reduce the number of kids that were in residential care so that they could live in home-based care and at least be with a, a family if they can't be with their birth family. And they were our clear uh, problem statements. We matched then the evidence to what works for those key areas. And we asked our board of directors to invest in a proof of concept to put programs on the ground that had been through randomized control trials in international contexts, so not locally, but had decades of research and had really moved the dial on those, those numbers that I mentioned in, in driving them down. And the board were very generous in saying yes. I mean, we had a business plan, so it wasn't just me asking for, for money. And uh, since that initial investment four years ago, we have grown from no evidence-based programs, I guess, to now having 20 different teams around Australia. So we've also not just grown from Victoria, but into the ACT, New South Wales and Queensland, all along the eastern seaboard. And those 20 teams from that in initial investment of two and a half million have generated $56 million worth of business. And uh, what I actually shared today uh, in an interview I was at is that in the last four years, we have, we've served 1,200 uh, children and families through those intervention programs. And of the 1,200, 1,095 still remained safely with family. And if those children had entered the out-of-home care sector, so the cost avoided by doing that work has saved the economy $85 million as well. So the rigorous processes you've embedded in the culture at Auschwitz, in terms of evidence-based decision-making and a smart and strategic approach to growth, is delivering results for vulnerable children and their families. The fact that we identified the key problem statements, uh, matched the interventions, got the investment and backing of our board. So it's something that comes from the very top of the organisation right through the front line. Our staff are really well trained as a result as a, by having these incredibly um, rigorous models. And most importantly, most importantly, we now have for, for all those 1,095 families uh, if you just take the average of 2.5 children per family, then that's um, about 3,500 children that are still living at home that otherwise would have been removed and placed into the care of someone else. Lisa, as our conversation draws to a close, I want to thank you for giving so freely of your time today and sharing rich insights into your journey to leadership. Central to what you have shared today is your total commitment to high-performance leadership always by way of evidence-based practice. Listeners on their own journeys to leadership have some great takeaways, including grounding yourself in evidence, being open to being challenged and being true to yourself and your values. There was also the valuable takeaway from a two-time Commonwealth Games medalist in judo. Leadership of self and leadership of others is a lifelong journey of discovery. Thank you so much for your generosity, Lisa. Thank you, Penny. And a big thank you to those who have tuned into this episode of What Leaders Know. If you would like a resource to help you map out a pathway to leadership, or if you're looking for support to take your career to the next level, head on over to my website, whatleadersknow.com, where you'll be able to download the resource, along with the show notes from today's episode. 
I look forward to your company next week when we'll be joined by another successful leader who'll share their journey to leadership with us. Until then, happy days and stay safe. I'm Penny Beeston and this has been What Leaders Know. 